When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Former British Prime Minister Sir Tony Blair has admitted that he may have been wrong about the decision to invade Iraq, but insisted he thought it was the right thing to do. That fateful decision in 2003 set forward a set of events that would topple a dictator, Saddam Hussein, leading to his execution, but also the implosion of a nation and the war-related deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians. So how did Sir Tony get Britain embroiled in Iraq? Well, I'm your host James Patton Rogers, and to take us through this controversial history, we have James Strong on the podcast. James is an expert in British foreign policy at Queen Mary University in London and the author of Public Opinion, Legitimacy and Tony Blair's War in Iraq. Together we explore this history and the lasting impact of Blair's decision to take Britain to war. Hi James, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? Hi James, I'm very good. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast as part of our special series marking 20 years, almost unbelievably 20 years since the Iraq war. Does it make you feel old, James? It marks 20 years since I sat my A-levels, so that's also <laughs> a fact that I find deeply, deeply uncomfortable. It was a, an interesting time to be doing A-level politics, but uh, I'd prefer it if it wasn't 20 years that's passed in the meantime, if I'm totally honest. You see, that's interesting, though. Was it the Iraq war that got you interested in politics? Absolutely. I mean, the route through from from 9-11 and all the responses to it. I I often tell my students when I'm telling them what 9-11 was, that when it happened, I was almost exactly the same age that my granddad was at the outbreak of the Second World War. And you forget, with the passage of time and, and with the fact that it didn't turn out this way, just how earth shattering it was when 9-11 action took place. And that brief period of time, we had no idea what was going to happen. And I thought, oh my goodness, is, is this World War Three? I'm a 16-year-old boy slash man. That is the wrong age and the wrong gender to be at the outset of a major war. You know, my granddad spent the next six years in uniform from when he was 16. Uh, is that going to be what happens to me? Now, we know now, and we found out fairly quickly that it wasn't going to go like that. But there was a period where it felt a bit like that. And we may come back to that later on. But I do think that's part of the wider story of Iraq that we're going to be talking about. And of course, James, we may not have been conscripted, but there were many of Britain's best and youngest and brightest who were sent off to fight in the war on terror and who never came 
back. And the architects behind all of this, I guess, you could put the responsibility down to the to the man in charge at this point in time, Prime Minister Tony Blair, an incredibly controversial figure when it comes to discussing the Iraq War of 2003. I mean, there are other controversial figures. We could talk about Saddam Hussein himself, or perhaps George Bush and, and Dick Cheney, but Tony holds his own in, in, in that list, especially next to George Bush and Cheney himself. Self. So, one of the main reasons behind Tony Blair's, I guess you could say, decline in his popularity post-Iraq is due to the fact that it's come to be known as an illegal war, a war that Britain should never have been embroiled in in the first place. Do you think it's fair to say that this was an illegal war? I think it's a really difficult question because... It really depends on who you ask and what, what standard of legality you're applying. At a really basic level, yes, because it's clearly a war of aggression. It's clearly a use of force without explicit approval by the UN Security Council. The issue, though, is that when you talk about what makes the use of force legal under international law, you always wind up talking about the UN Security Council and both the US and the UK are permanent members and have a veto at the UN Security Council. So essentially, the UK is able to mark its own homework in this regard. The only way you could say for definite that it was an illegal war is if the Security Council passes a resolution saying this is an illegal war. And that's never going to happen because the UK can just veto it. The US can just veto it. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of international lawyers were so upset about the invasion of Iraq, because they made the point that international law is a fragile thing, right? It doesn't have the enforcement mechanisms that we have in a domestic legal setting. It will only survive if states are not too rough with it. And one of the great criticisms made, I think this is a perfectly fair criticism of the Blair government and its treatment of international law in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq, is that it treats it like it's domestic law. It treats it as we can make the most aggressive case that we think is justified and leave it up to the other side to argue against us. But of course, there is no other side because the UK is judge as well as accused. Um, and it can simply say, well, this was fine from our perspective. The other side, of course, is the domestic side of things. And that's also where it gets very interesting, because actually the question of whether the war was legal in domestic law was something that did occupy some some thinking, particularly in the Ministry of Defence. Could the Secretary of State legally order British forces into Iraq and could British forces follow that law? As, as we know, under, the, under international law, military personnel are themselves expected to obey the law. And the fact they've been ordered to do something illegal is no defence. This is the Nuremberg defence, right? I was only following orders. This is not allowed. Um, so it was one of the questions that was talked about. But in terms of UK domestic law... The question of whether something is legal under international law is purely a question for the Attorney General. And if the Attorney General says under international law, this is legal, then from a domestic law perspective, it's legal. That was one of the things that caused a lot of discussion in the lead up. So that's quite a roundabout way of saying it's not a straightforward question to answer unless you take it to the most, most straightforward level. Take it to the most straightforward level, obviously, it is unnecessary. Obviously, it's disproportionate. Obviously, there's no UN Security Council resolution. But it was at least arguable at the time. One of the themes that runs through all of this is things that were arguable, right? And we might come back to that later on. 
Of course, one of the key things here is that Tony Blair is is thinking he's going to win this war. He's had a a pretty good track record when it comes to to warfare at this moment in time. Perhaps he didn't think that when he was elected on very much a domestic footing back in 1997 that he would become a wartime leader. Of course, he was incredibly successful domestically. But when we go back to those late 90s and the early 2000s, it's fair to say that that Blair had built himself up a bit of a, a reputation for being a canny political decision maker, someone who had cozied up very closely to the United States. He was good friends with Bill Clinton. And if anything, he was dragging the United States into wars that perhaps they were a little unsure of, especially Kosovo. Well, I think that's a good point about Kosovo. Clinton is not wild about getting involved in Kosovo. Blair, as we know, goes to Chicago, makes this this speech setting out this new foreign policy doctrine, the doctrine of international community, doesn't tell the foreign office he's doing this, by the way, just sort of shows up and makes this speech. He's written it himself with significant input from uh, Lawrence Friedman, actually, who winds up on the Chilcot panel. One of the things that's really important to understand about Blair in the run-up to Iraq is the fact that it's not his first war. Not only is it not his first war, but his previous wars. So you've got Kosovo, you've got uh, intervention in Sierra Leone, you've got the military action in Iraq in 1998, and you've got the invasion of Afghanistan. All of these things seem to have worked out. They all seem to have gone well, at least at this point in time. You know, we can debate subsequently, but at this point in time, they all seem to have gone well. And he's done it, he's done all of them in the face of significant public criticism at home. So it's not just that he's fought wars and they've seemed to go well. He's fought wars that people were telling him, don't do this, and it seemed to go well. What lesson do you take from that if you're a prime minister six years into your premiership as Blair was in 2003? The lesson you take is that I know what I'm doing, right? And I know better than a lot of these talking heads in the media or these people who are criticising me or indeed than public opinion. I know what I'm doing here. And this is one of the things that that becomes one of the sources of the faith that Blair has in his own judgment that runs all the way through the decision-making leading into the war in Iraq. You see, it's it's a fascinating point, isn't it? Because... Blair obviously has the the confidence of of his convictions. He's he's seen from Kosovo that there's been a, a rapid victory in that conflict. I mean, there's a whole generation of of children in Kosovo named in his honour. A whole generation of Tonys, and so you can understand why he has the mindset that he does. But how well does he do in conveying his intentions, his motivations, his reasons for putting Britain into Iraq? How well does he do in conveying those to the British people? Well, one of the things that happens with Blair is he does give all of his his real reasons in public at some point, but he doesn't necessarily make clear the, the sort of hierarchy between the reasons. So in October 2001, immediate aftermath of 9-11, he's at the Labour Party conference and he makes this speech and there's this line in it, the kaleidoscope has been shaken, the pieces are in flux. Before they settle again, let us reorder this world around us. So the idea that the man who said that line would have any qualms at all about regime change in the pursuit of human rights and liberal democracy is is completely for the birds. Obviously, this is someone who believes uh, not only that liberal democracies have a right to intervene in the affairs of other states to try and make them more like liberal democracies. He believes they have a duty 
to do this. And this, this again, it's, this is pre-existing. It's reinforced by his experiences. It's reinforced by his understanding of 9-11. And it's there in all of his private discussions leading up to the war in Iraq. March 2002, before he goes to visit George W. Bush at his ranch in Crawford, this is one of the key moments in the process, he has an exchange of memos with his aides uh, in Downing Street, and his key advisors, and he's very clear with them. He says, look, uh, from a centre-left perspective, the case for removing Saddam should be obvious, right? Of course we should be doing this. This is a brutal dictator who oppresses his people, and we have the capacity to end him, so we should. He doesn't really start making the argument in public until the final weeks running up to the invasion. And the reason he does it is very simple, because it's not clear that there's solid legal grounds for doing it. So one of the challenges that Blair has in this period is he feels that there is a clash between what international law permits and what it should permit. And the doctrine of international community that he sets out over Kosovo is a great example. You know, the intervention in Kosovo is not legal under international law. Blair nevertheless considers it legitimate. His argument is, look, if international law has not yet got to a stage where it allows us to do this, we should break international law or we should try and evolve international law, uh, put pressure on the development of international law so that we are allowed to do these things because they're clearly morally right. And if international law doesn't permit it, then it's the law that's wrong rather than us. And so he doesn't make this case publicly because he knows that it's legally problematic, but it is what he believes. Uh, and he believes it much more strongly than he really believes the question of the threat from weapons of mass destruction and so on. Again, I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But by the time it gets to the final end game, by the time it's clear there's not going to be another UN Security Council resolution, you've basically reached deadlock in terms of the diplomacy of it, and it's clear that the war is going to happen, that's when he starts to come out and say, well, you know what, though? We should feel okay about the fact this war is going to happen because look at all of these benefits it's going to have. And in the final speech, the 17th of March 2003, in the House of Commons, he talks a great deal about this. He says, look, what will it mean to the Iraqi people if we don't go ahead with this? What will it mean? It will mean, there's a wonderful evocative line, something like, uh, being left under the darkness of authoritarianism forever or something like that. This is what he believes. And this is what he believes consistently. And one of the arguments I made about his honesty is that it's not that he's dishonest about what he thinks. He just doesn't really properly explain the relationship between the things that he thinks and, and the importance of this fundamental bedrock, this fundamental belief that, look, this is simply morally appropriate behaviour. It's hard to look back in hindsight, James, and think, oh, well, you know, why don't we just trust Tony Blair, especially when so many of those promises that were made at the time and so many of the claims that were made have proven to be untrue. You mentioned WMDs, one of the cornerstones for why we were going to war in Iraq. And alongside that, there was the 45-minute warning of attack and, and the dodgy dossier. Where did Blair get all of this information from? There's a number of things that go wrong. I think, in the UK's assessment of the threat posed by Iraq. I think the first thing that goes wrong is that the UK doesn't actually have very much information at all about what's going on in Iraq. So one of the things that the Chilcot report found or, or confirmed was that the UK had zero first-hand human intelligence sources in Iraq at this time. No one. Right? There was no one in Iraq who was talking to British intelligence at this point. So a lot of the intelligence assessments are being based on secondhand information or being based on 
judgments underpinned by fairly limited whispers and wisps of material being picked up across the intelligence community. So there isn't very good information to start off with. And the fact that the information is not very good, this is routinely communicated by the Joint Intelligence Committee. But perhaps the fact that it's routinely communicated leads many ministers, including Blair himself, to discount it, to simply say, well, you know, obviously there's not great information, but we think this is what's happening, and to forget about the first part. So the information is known to not be very good. The second thing that happens is in the attempt to find some real information, some of the sources that are used are of mixed quality. So the 45-minute claim, the classic 45-minute claim, this came from an MI6 source. Um, it was second-hand information. So it was someone who said that someone had told them that Iraq had this capability. The source was on trial. They were considered to be credible, but they didn't have an established track record yet. But this information came in at the start of September 2002. Right, this information came in at exactly the time that Blair has been forced into announcing that he's going to release the WMD dossier ahead of schedule. He's always said, we'll do this just before the invasion. He's been pressured into doing it early because MPs have got fed up over the summer of 2002. They're busy organising their own dummy parliamentary meeting. This is going to be very, very embarrassing. Um, so Blair does a press conference. It's clear from the press conference notes that he off the cuff announces, right, you know what, we will do the WMD dossier in the next couple of weeks. No prior consultation. The briefing notes say what he's been saying all along, which is, you know, we'll do it when, when the time is right. In the press conference, he says, right, we'll do it in the next few weeks. And that then kickstarts the process that leads to the production of the September 2002 WMD dossier. So this report has come into MI6 at this time, exactly at the time when the whole intelligence community is being asked to come up with whatever they have that might help explain the possible threat in Iraq. Um, so the claim, it looks good. It's described by one witness as being a bit of local colour. Uh, David Oman, so David Oman, later head of GCHQ, told Chilcott that, you know, with hindsight, you can see we were asking for trouble, but we didn't really spot that at the time, that this claim had come in, it was eye-catching, um, and we thought it was a nice illustration of the broader point we were trying to make, which is that Iraq has these weapons and it can use these weapons and the intelligence is all pointing in that direction. That intelligence, by the end of 2002, MI6 has doubts about it. And before the invasion, MI6 has withdrawn the reporting. But what happens when reporting like this is withdrawn, there isn't automatically a memo that goes up to Ministers who may have seen the previous assessment, they don't automatically get an alert saying, oh, by the way, that piece of reporting has now been pulled back. Um, and Blair and Jack Straw, the Foreign Secretary, both found out about this when they are preparing for the Butler inquiry in 2004. That was the point at which it was flagged up to them that this had actually been withdrawn and it had been withdrawn before the invasion. This brings us back to the point that the timing of the WMD dossier was not of Blair's choosing. Blair always intended to have a short gap between the dossier and the final decision to go to war. Because he's forced to do it seven months before the invasion, there's enough time for this sort of thing to happen. There's enough time for contradictory reports to come in and, and potentially for a different decision to be made. This is why the dossier is described as creating hostages to fortune, going on the record and saying, this is what we think is going on out there. A lot can happen over that kind of seven-month period. 
Well, yeah, and that's for sure. I mean, once you start having these challenges of the dodgy dossier, this idea that Saddam can launch chemical and biological weapons, these weapons of mass destruction, WMDs, against Britain's core strategic interests within that short amount of time, well, it, it starts to scare the public. But when you start pulling at the thread and you start to see that maybe these aren't true, then Blair's legitimacy starts to fall apart. The case for going to war in Iraq starts to fall apart. And I've, I've read in your work, you call this a, a legitimacy deficit at this point in time. Now, does this feed through into public opinion? Is it around this time that you start to get the mass marches in the streets? What is it, the, a million people on the streets of London marching against the war? Yeah, I mean, you have these huge protests. So February 2003, about a month before the invasion, you have this massive million-plus stop the war March. At the time, it's the largest public protest in British history. Interestingly, though, the protest and a lot of the opposition to the invasion, it's not really critiquing things like the WMD claim. That's not really where the disagreements come in. That comes later. There's a lot of hindsight later on. People say, oh, well, uh, obviously, there's no WMD. I said we shouldn't invade at the time. The argument at the time is more along the lines of maybe that stuff is there, but an invasion is not a proportionate response to that, or an invasion will cause uh, humanitarian suffering that is not justified given the level of the threat. So what happens at the time of the, of, the, of the marches, a lot of it is simply saying it's morally wrong to start a war. And the level of concern with the threat is basically, look, Iraq is not, is not in fact threatening us with these weapons. It hasn't in fact used these weapons since the early 1990s it doesn't feel very scary. The problem with that from Blair's perspective, though, is his argument is we can't afford, in the aftermath of the 9-11, what did we learn from 9-11? We learned we can't afford to wait. Right? Jack Straw at one point says we can't afford for the smoking gun to come in the form of a mushroom cloud. Right? We cannot afford to know that this hypothetical threat is out there and then not do anything about it. So, yeah, people are right to say, well, why are we doing this if we haven't been attacked? But if we are attacked, the consequences of that will be so severe that it's just not justifiable. The, the calculus of threat changed after 9-11. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. So this calculus of threat might well change post 9-11, but isn't there an attempt at this point in time to try and draw the two together, to make Iraq synonymous with 9-11, to make Iraq synonymous with Afghanistan? Because if you can do that under this umbrella term of the the axis of, of evil, if I remember correctly, then you can tie the invasion of Iraq into this emerging idea of preemptive self-defense. The idea that you've got to strike now, you've got to strike quickly, or put simply, there's going to be another 9-11, and it might be London. So Blair agrees with the idea of preemptive self-defense. He agrees with the Bush doctrine, which is very much a doctrine of preemptive self-defense. And he agrees that the lesson from 9-11 is, if you think a threat might be out there, you should go and deal with it rather than waiting for it to come to you. This is not for him the primary reason for going after Iraq, but it is the primary reason why the US is going after Iraq. One of the big differences between the UK and US debates on Iraq is uh, there is much more of an understanding in the UK public opinion, in the public debate in Parliament, that Iraq and 9-11 are not directly linked. And Blair never claims they're directly linked. He always claims the link is indirect. He always claims that because 9-11 has shown us that high impact, low probability threats are genuine threats, we also need to look again at other high impact, low probability threats. And so he would say Iraq giving weapons of mass destruction to terrorists is high impact, low probability, and we need to focus more on the high impact side and less on the low probability side. That, of course, just happens 
to counteract or contradict the advice he's receiving in private. So the advice he has from MI5, for example, is, yeah, Iraq probably has the capability to give weapons of mass destruction to terrorists. It doesn't really seem to have the intention to do that. Uh, Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda hate each other. They're really not on the same side in any recognisable fashion. So yes, there are terrorists who would love to get hold of weapons of mass destruction. Yes, Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. But these two things coming together is very, very unlikely. But again, the lesson Blair has learned from 9-11 is things that are very unlikely can still happen. And so being told they're very unlikely doesn't change his thinking at all. Because that's he knows that. He knows they're very unlikely, but he's just seen something very unlikely happen. He thinks, well, it almost becomes reinforcing. Oh, this is unlikely as well. Well, we better worry about it. Are we starting to get a little bit of a, a bleeding in of the American narrative around this? To, to what extent does Bush and Cheney at this time start to start to sway Blair's mind, start to whisper in his ear? Because when you look at Blair's memoirs, he says that he, he thinks today he wonders, did he make the right decision. And I can only imagine that when you have this this large amount of, of public disquiet that Britain will be taken into this war, and there wasn't that clear link between 9-11 and Afghanistan and the Taliban harbouring al-Qaeda, well then he must have started to get a little bit worried. So did Bush and did Cheney strong arm him ever so slightly into the war that came? This is one of the big questions that Blair is asked repeatedly into the run-up to the invasion. Alistair Campbell calls it the poodle problem. Blair is accused of being President Bush's poodle. Very, very funny mental image. Uh, Poodles, I don't want to offend any poodle owners listening, but poodle's kind of funny looking dog. There's lots of nice cartoons. Poodle's also famously not actually terribly obedient, but that's a whole other matter. At one point, though, in the summer of 2002, Blair is asked this question directly. Um, and he says, it's worse than you think. I believe in it. And actually, that's what's going on behind the scenes. He doesn't disagree with Bush and Cheney that Saddam Hussein is a threat. He doesn't disagree with Bush and Cheney that if they have the capacity to do something about Saddam Hussein, they should do something about Saddam Hussein. A lot of the criticism that Blair gets is based on this perception that he is being bullied or is otherwise slavishly following orders from the US. And he's very consistent in saying that's not what's happening at all. I actually think this is a good idea. I actually think this is the right thing to do. Now, what is going on, and he does explain this to some extent, is a calculation that if the Americans are going to do it regardless, it's better for Britain to be involved than for Britain not to be involved. And this is often something that gets forgotten about in the British debate, is the Americans are going to do it regardless. When it becomes clear a couple of weeks before the invasion that Blair is going to face real parliamentary opposition, Donald Rumsfeld just comes out and publicly says, well, you know what, if the Brits can't be involved, I'm sure we'll find some other way they can help us. Like completely, we don't care, like whatever. And Britain is the largest military ally going into this. The Americans can do it on their own and they're going to do it on their own. So Blair's argument all along is it's not a question of, is it a good idea? It's a question of when they do it, what should our position be? And he says, well, I kind of agree with them on the substance of what they're trying to do. So actually, maybe my role is about helping them to do it in a way that's smart. And that seems to be the position that he takes with Bush from the, from the start. By all means, let's talk about Iraq. By all means, let's do something about Iraq. But let's be smart about how we do it. Let's be sensible about how we do it. Part of that is about selling it in the right kind of way. Part of it 
is also about being sure that it's actually a sensible thing to do when they go ahead and do it. It's hard, it's hard to buy that argument, James, because the trouble is, is that another close ally of the United States, the French, decided most certainly not to get involved in that conflict, one that they saw as being most incredibly illegal. And, and as a result, you had restaurants in the United States changing the name of French fries to Freedom Fries and, and everything else that we saw during that period. So what did Britain get out of this decision? What did Blair get out of this decision? Has Britain's relationship with the United States become stronger over the last 20 years, whereas the French have been moved to the wayside? I I kind of think not. Well, I think that's right. I think Blair makes the strategic calculation that this is such a unique moment in US history that you've got to be on the right side of it if you want to maintain your, your special relationship in the long term. And that clearly turns out not to be true, right? That this is a misjudgment. Um, and the relationship with France is, is perfectly reparable. And France has gone on to conduct joint military operations with the US in Libya, in Syria, and so on. But it's also often forgotten just how close run a thing it was. So the Charles de Gaulle, the French aircraft carrier, is on its way to the Gulf to participate in military action until quite late on. And it's really quite late on where Chirac comes out firmly and says, we are not willing to support this at this time. And he always says at this time, we're not willing to support this. We're not persuaded that the UN has been properly respected. And that brings us to, I think, the key difference in judgment between Blair and Chirac. Blair's view is if the Americans are going to do it regardless, we should be on side. We should support them. Because if we don't support them in this thing they think is so important, they will never trust us again. Chirac's view is, if they're going to do it regardless, what's the point of being allies? What's the point of having a UN Security Council if you just let the Americans do whatever they want? If you prioritise keeping them inside the tent over actually upholding the rules, what are the rules even there for? What's the point of any of it? So Blair says, look, the UN should let the Americans do this. Otherwise, the Americans might walk away from the UN. And that's a terrible thing for the long term. And Chirac says, if that's their attitude, why should they be involved in the first place? What is the point of keeping them involved just by doing whatever they want? So that is the difference of strategic judgment between Blair and between Chirac. Um, And I think if you look at what, what happens subsequently, obviously, it turns out that the war doesn't go well. The British contribution to it is mixed and other things happen and the thing about the us is they're very very good at finding different ways of saying you're our best friends britain has a special relationship and france is the oldest alliance and actually what really underpins these things is the capacity to deliver something useful to deliver tangible benefits and as soon as france has something tangible to offer in future it's back in from the cold and the freedom fries are off the menu I mean, it's hard to say that Chirac doesn't have a point. The United States at this point in time, we're 58, 60 years post-Second World War, they established the United Nations. This is the system that they made, and the French are simply saying that they are bought in to the UN and to international law. And I remember reading Sir Michael Howard's work, the famous military historian at the time, and, and, and he stated that it's the United States who has done so much to undo the legal foundations, the precedents of the world that they made themselves. And so is this a question of ideology at this point in time? Is it on one side you've got the French and and others who want to keep in line with international law and the norms that have been made, whereas on the other side you have Blair 
and Bush and a very different ideology that is about completely remaking the world in, in, a, in a, a very different image. I think there's a difference in terms of how valuable you think international organisations are. And I think that the, the sort of French position at this time is the organisations are valuable in and of themselves. It is useful to have international organisations. It's useful to have international legal frameworks. It's useful to have rules that all states agree to follow, even if they're very powerful states. And the position of the Bush administration very, very clearly is these things are only useful if they deliver outcomes that are in US national interests. And as soon as they're not delivering outcomes in US national interests, why should we be bound by them? Why should we, as the superpower, as the most powerful state in the system, accept less security than we might otherwise have simply in order to follow rules that are being enforced, frankly, by our strategic rivals? Why should we uh, hold ourselves to moral standards when the judges of those moral standards are Russia and China? How is that really an effective moral standard? And Blair says the same thing. He says, look, if you're saying the only way you can morally do something in international politics is if Russia and China say it's okay, maybe that's not actually the right moral standard to be applying. And that is the standard you're applying if you're saying the Security Council has to sign off on it. So to what extent do we think that actually the Iraq war is more of a product of the end of the Cold War? It's a world where the United States and its allies are the, the hegemonic powers. Well, the US is the hegemon and it has its allies falling in line behind it. It doesn't have the power of China and Russia at this point in time to stand up to the United States, or at least that's what Bush and his allies feel. And so they have pretty much free run to do what they want to do in the international system. Put simply, James, is it not the case that there was just no one there to stop them? There was definitely no one there to stop them. But that's also part of why they wanted to do it. The Bush doctrine, which grows out of neoconservatism, it grows out of the project for a new American century in the 1990s, is based on the idea that with the Soviet Union having gone away, smaller possible threats to the US have forgotten just how powerful the US actually is. The rationale for invading Iraq is to prove that they are able to do it. It's to prove that they are crazy enough to do it. It's to prove that it'll be easy, right? That's why they do it. The idea is to send a signal to other possible threats. This will happen to you. We will roll over you. We'll roll over your military in six weeks. and We won't even break a sweat. Do not come for us. That's the rationale. And it's a, we call it offensive realism in international relations. It's the idea that by showing how powerful you are, you actually make conflict less likely, right? Because no one's going to dare to attack you in the first place. That is very much the logic that they're following at this time. If there had been a credible strategic rifle, you would have had other ways of demonstrating that power without necessarily having to go after a smaller possible threat. So it's definitely a product of the post-Cold War period. They're no longer competing with the Soviet Union. And instead, they feel that they are having to deal with threats that they shouldn't really be having to deal with. You see that that is fascinating. It's a, it's a shot across the bow. It is a, a a way to deter aggression against 
the West. Now, of course, the bombing does begin in 2003. Shock and awe. Blair gets his approval through Parliament, at least, for this war to take place. Saddam goes on the run. He's eventually caught and executed in 2006. And the war ends with regime change, which is what Blair and Bush wanted in the first place. Although there are, of course, other mixed results and legacies. None less than the thousands of civilian casualties and the hundreds of Western troops who die in this conflict. So is there any point in all of this, up until today, James, that Blair has looked and he's admitted that he was wrong to take Britain into this war? Did the did the Chilcot inquiry, an inquiry that lasted longer than the war itself, did that change his mind at all, or did it simply vindicate him? Blair was asked explicitly at the Chilcot inquiry whether he regretted his decisions, and he said no. He said, I have responsibility. I have responsibility for the decisions. I have responsibility for the negative outcomes. But honestly, no, I, I do not regret removing Saddam. He reiterated that in response to the report coming out. Uh, Blair still to this day believes that he made the right decisions at the time, that he was morally justified and that while things had did not turn out the way he expected them to turn out, that he would still make the exact same decisions if he had his time again. This underlying moral certainty, of course, is part of how we had this war in the first place. And I think one of the things that's significant about the fact we're talking about Tony Blair, an individual, in the context of the UK's invasion of Iraq, is you take Blair away, the UK does not go to war in Iraq in 2003. You take that one man out of this situation, it's very, very clear within government he's driving it, in parliament he's driving it, significant numbers of MPs stand up and say, I really have doubts about this invasion, but how can I say no when the Prime Minister, the leader of my party, has expressed such conviction and such faith that this is the right thing to do. And Blair's speech in that final debate is absolutely fantastic. It's one of his very, very most powerful moments in Parliament. And perhaps it's unsurprising that 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 sort of moral certainty does not disappear, despite everything that subsequently goes wrong. And I suppose it it shows us just how important a charismatic leader with a persuasive will um, is to domestic politics. It it really can take just one person to change the course of a nation. And like you say, that's why we're still talking about Tony Blair and the Iraq War today. Now, as part of this special series, we've got uh, a few more episodes coming up and we'll look into the legacies of the Iraq War. So I'll leave it to our listeners to decide whether or not Blair was justified into taking us into that conflict. But James, thank you so much for your time. And you have to tell us, where can people read more about this topic? Where can we read your work? Thanks very much, James. So uh, my book, Public Opinion, Legitimacy and Tony Blair's War in Iraq was published by Rutledge in 2017. I'm pretty sure I was the first academic book to benefit from the Chilcot uh, report. I had the manuscript in about eight weeks after the report came out, which was a very busy eight weeks. And I still maintain that there are very few people who've read all of it, but I have. So Public Opinion, Legitimacy and Tony Blair's War in Iraq. Fantastic, James. Thank you so much. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.